Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State, the podcast where you ask the questions, you decide what we cover, and then we find the answers together. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Alex Keefe. And you might remember that in our last episode, we got this question from Allison Litton of Wilder, Vermont. What are Vermont's most interesting, intriguing, bizarre, mysterious ghost stories? We had one great story in our last episode. You should definitely give it a listen if you missed it. But we really wanted more. And thanks to you, we found some. Welcome to Brave Little State's Halloween Special. A terrifying compendium of spine-tingling Vermont ghost stories as told to us by you, our audience. To try and answer Allison's question, we put a call out for you to record yourself telling your spookiest original Vermont ghost stories, and we've collected them here for your petrifying pleasure. Our stories are all rated PG, but they are scary and they're all true. Actually, we don't know if they're true. Whatever. They feel really, really true. So everyone huddle around the earbuds, dim the lights, draw the shades, and beware. We'll start with the tale submitted by Aaron Garceau of St. Albans City. We're calling it Don't Look in the Mirror. The reason that I know about this story is because it happened to our family. We moved to St. Albans City from Burlington about 13 years ago when my daughter was just a month old. We found a a very old house that had been broken up into many apartments. And over the years, we've been converting this old Victorian back into a single-family home. And about seven years ago, when my wife and I were having a quiet evening in what is now called the music room back earlier would have been called the parlor she got up from the couch and went into the kitchen to get something i was sitting on the couch and watching tv and i could hear her come into the room behind me and sort of stand in the doorway which is sometimes what we do if we're in the middle of watching something and we've got uh, something warming up in the oven or uh, something that's taking a couple of minutes in the microwave But I noticed that more than just a couple of minutes had gone by, and uh, I finally looked over at my wife. And I had never seen her looking like that before. She had gone very pale. She had tears in her eyes. Her hands were shaking. 
And I realized the reason she'd been staying there so long is because she was kind of afraid to tell me uh, about what had just happened. And I said, you know, what, what's wrong? What's going on? And she said, I just saw a woman by the foot of the stairs. And I said, what do you mean you just saw a woman by the foot of the stairs? Like there's someone stand there? She said, well, no. She said, I saw a woman. She was kind of white and transparent. And I said, are you, you sure you didn't just see the lights coming off of the, the cars outside as they turn up Newton Street? Are you sure you didn't just see a, a cat running down the stairs? And she said, no, Aaron, I saw a woman standing by the stairs. She wanted to describe this woman. She was wearing a long dress. She had um, a high collar on whatever it is she was wearing. She had a bun in her hair. And she said this woman just stood there peacefully. So I spent the next couple of weeks walking around that house at night just kind of hoping to see something. And, and well, I, I never actually did. So fast forward a couple of years and my wife has signed up with the Vermont Surrogacy Network to be a carrier for a couple who can't otherwise carry a baby on their own. And she was going to meet downtown St. Albans at uh, one of the cafes down there with the woman who started the Surrogacy Network, Jess. So they met for coffee that morning and through conversation it turns out that Jess actually lived in this house back when it was apartment. She lived in the downstairs side and uh, the two of them started kind of chuckling about the wallpaper, the way it was when we first went in and Jess related the story of the carpet in the kitchen that was glued down to the hardwood floor that they removed and, and it was at that point that Jess looked at my wife and said, have you met the woman at the bottom of the stairs? To have just my wife see the woman at the bottom of the stairs is one thing. I can chalk that up to, um, you know, a trick of the lights, um, whatever kind of mood was set that evening. But to have another person so specifically, so specifically describe where and what they saw um, gave this story a whole new meaning for for me and for our family. Apparently, Jess had seen this woman by the stairs often enough where she took a blanket and put it over the, uh, the big mirror that was over the fireplace in our living room just because she was afraid to stand in the living room, look into that mirror, and see a person standing behind her. It's creepy enough if you think that there's a person in your house who's alive who shouldn't be there but to imagine someone in your house who is no longer alive being there. I continue to do some research on the house. I have figured out the folks who've lived there back to the 19 teens and I have a name of a couple who lived there back around 1900. I was even sent a postcard of the house and on the back it was addressed to a Mrs. B.B. Perkins who I guess was living in Maine and someone wrote to her saying, hey, here's what your old place looks like. 
I know you miss it and I uh, hope you get to see it again. And well, my thought is that perhaps Mrs. B.B. Perkins is with the house and is seeing it and the family that's living in it right now. That story was told to us by Aaron Garceau of St. Albans. We have that picture of Aaron's house from the old postcard that he mentioned at bravelittlestate.org. Our next tale comes to us from Noah Detzer from White River Junction. It's the tale of a spooky abandoned neighborhood in the Upper Valley, one that no one knows pretty well because he visited it and he brought a recorder. Without further ado, here is Monkey Town. Just about every town has that one house that you're not supposed to go near, the house that always feels off in some way, like something's just not right. Growing up in the Upper Valley, though, we didn't have a house like that. We had an entire neighborhood, and we called it Monkey Town. In a detail that sounds made up but truly isn't, Monkey Town was located down a hill behind a graveyard. There was one long dirt road that led all the way down to the entrance. It was the only way in or out. Going to Monkey Town was a rite of passage for just about everyone in my high school. My best friend Ethan and I heard all kinds of stories about it. The man who owned Monkey Town would chase people out with shotguns. He had two guard dogs waiting to attack anyone who went inside. Or that the whole place was haunted by kids who grew up in the community and weren't allowed to leave. So one summer night, Ethan and I decided it was finally time to investigate and record the whole thing. Okay, so there's a dead-end sign up ahead. <laughs> boarded up, a, a completely boarded up house. Yeah, keep that's going normal. Around. Yeah, keep going. We'd amassed as many stories as we could about it. The stories that we heard most often went like this. Monkey Town started as a religious cult a long time ago. People were encouraged not to leave, and after a while, the genetic pool stopped being quite so diverse. The second thing was that visiting Monkey Town only counted if you rang a mysterious bell. Alright, I heard there was a bell, but I don't... Oh god, that's right! You have to ring the bell. No. Jesus Christ. Are you serious? Yeah, because I have to be in the car so we can get away quick. Okay, wait, where's the bell? I have no idea. Okay, there's, there's a little... Oh my god. Do you see the bell? Do you see the bell? No, I don't see the bell. As we drove around the loop, we noticed that the houses, about 30 in total, were painted in different bland, monotonous colors. Paint was peeling from each of them, and the doors to most of the houses were nailed shut with large, haphazard wooden planks barring the entrance. There was one streetlight bathing everything in a sickly greenish glow. The center of town had an abandoned, rusted swing set and a decaying plastic yellow slide. Look, no, some of these houses are like boarded. Look at this one. It's like boarded up. Jesus Christ. Okay, look, there's like a gazebo. There's the bell. In the way that only best friends can, Ethan forced me to be the one to throw a rock at the bell. Yeah, the rocks are... Are you, are you serious? I have to get out and do... Oh, Jesus. Yes, come on. I jumped back in the car as we heard a loud crash. Ethan gunned the gas and we shot forward and just as we were leaving, I saw a light in one of the abandoned buildings. Come on. And there's the creepy boarded up house again. Wait, so what was the bell for? There's a light on in that one. We didn't stick around to figure out what that was about. The mystery of Monkey Town remains unsolved. We still don't know what happened there. 
but I do know that I'm not going back anytime soon. Scary Adventure came to us from Noah Detzer. He lives in White River Junction. This next story took place generations ago, at just about this time of year. My name is Eve Ermer, and I live in Tunbridge, in the house where this story takes place. In the mid-1920s, two of my mother's uncles had a small farm here on this hill. The house was built in the early 1900s, but nearby, by the end of the driveway closer to the town road, was the cellar hole of the former house. That house had been gone for years, but lilacs are still there today, and 90 years ago, when this story takes place, the shape of a formal dooryard garden could still be seen with perennial flowers and even an old bench. One evening in November, the uncles had just finished chores and were sitting in the kitchen before making their supper. This was before electricity came to the hill farms, and it got dark early. They were sitting at the table by the window in the kitchen, drinking coffee, just having lit the kerosene lamp. Although there was still some light outside, that intense deep blue of a November evening and some bright snow on the ground. The warm lamplight in the kitchen darkened the view out the window, so all they could see was the lamp, the kitchen, and themselves reflected back at them. They heard a soft knock on the back door. It was not unusual for someone from a neighboring farm to come visit, but it was getting dark and they had heard no horse or vehicle and seen no light. They were surprised. They went to the door and found a small elderly woman standing alone in the dark on the back porch. She was dressed all in dark gray, bundled up against the chill. They asked her to come inside, which she did, but she then refused all offer of food or warm drink. She told them she had once lived in the area and was just stopping by to see the old place again. She stayed for a few minutes, chatting, and then turned and left. At first, the uncles were puzzled by this abrupt but pleasant visit, but then almost immediately they realized that they had just led an old lady out into a dark night with no indication that anyone was out there waiting for her or that she had any form of transportation besides her feet. Picking up a lantern, they left the house. Where was she? She had only just left. They hurriedly followed her small footprints in the snow away from the house, down the drive towards the town road, where the footprints stopped right at the old cellar hole, going no further. This is a true story, and because of this, like most true ghost stories, is not as terrifying as some others. Even so, I find myself walking quickly if I need to pass that old cellar hole at dusk.
That was Eve Ermer from Tunbridge. Which brings us to the final story of the episode. And what I think is maybe the creepiest story of the episode. It happened to Lorraine Zaloom from Milton back in the 1970s, and we're calling it the Polaroid. I worked at Dunkin' Donuts on Pearl Street in Essex Junction. That We had a pretty small crew, got to know each other, pretty relaxed. And one summer uh, there was a guy, new baker, who came in to work with us. His name was John. Nice kid, kind of cute easy to work with, easy to talk to. And after knowing him for a little while, I noticed one day he'd come in, he was a little spooked. He was acting a little funny. So upon questioning him about what was going on, he finally came out with it that he had uh, taken a picture of his dog that kind of spooked him out. He used to play fetch with his dog a lot. He had taken his camera and um, thought it'd be cute to kind of take some pictures of his dog playing fetch with a stick. And where he was playing fetch was by North Street. There's that big cemetery with that black wrought iron fence that wraps around it. He was throwing the stick and is calling his dog, and his dog was bringing it back, but he wouldn't come all the way back. He would come close to John, and he would plop his butt down on the sidewalk in front of that rod iron fence. So John did it a few more times. Dog wouldn't budge. Dog would come back, and he would plop down. So And kind of cock the head to the side, he said. So he decided, you know, it's a pretty cute picture. I'll snap one off. And he was using a Polaroid camera. So it instantly developed in front of him. And when it developed, he got pretty freaked out. showed it to me. In the picture, you could see his dog clearly sitting with a stick in his mouth, head cocked to one side, in backdrop by that black iron fence in the cemetery. And in the picture, there were these images. And the images were out of proportion to the dog in these kind of this bluish white light. And those images, some of them we can make out. It was really cool. One of the images we made out, it was a pair of baby booties that were slung over something. And they were kind of larger than a couple of the other images. There was uh, also a tiny soldier. We also saw a submarine, and the submarine was tiny. And the last one that we could make out looked like a like an outdoor pipe that had a faucet on the end, and it was hanging over a, a cracked cement slab. We had no idea what these images meant, what they were. A few weeks later, he's gone for a few days. He's disappeared. And finally he shows up, and he's got his arm in a sling, if I remember right. Turns out he had gone to a psychic, and the psychic had told him, don't bring this to anyone, don't share this to anyone, don't ever try to make money off of it, don't try to profit from it, because if you do, something bad is going to happen to you. A couple days after the psychic told him that, he and his friend in his own apartment got into a terrible fight, and his friend stabbed him, 
and he ended up in the hospital. So John attributed that stabbing to him thinking about trying to make money off this photograph. Since then, I have never seen him again. I have always wondered about him. I've always wondered about the picture. Anyway, if anyone out there knows of a John who worked on Pearl Street in Essex Junction at the Dunkin' Donuts back in the late 70s, please contact VPR because I want to know if it exists. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween. Polaroid was told to us by Lorraine Zaloom from Milton. And a huge, huge thanks to everyone who submitted original Vermont ghost stories for this special. We're going to close with one more submission that came to us in the form of a song. But first... Brave Little State is made possible with support from the VPR Journalism Fund. And from Darn Tough Vermont, knitting premium quality all-weather performance socks for all of life's active pursuits. Still made locally in Northfield, Vermont, and guaranteed for life. Visit them at darntough.com. Our terrifying Halloween theme was produced by Ty Gibbons. Other spooky music in this episode comes from Spires That In The Sunset Rise and from David Cooper. And like we said, we got one more spooky submission for this special episode. It's a song about vampires by the group Fifth Business from Rygate. It's set to the traditional tune, Rolling Down to Old Maui. Their version is called For We Live Nocturnally. And hey, it's a scary world out there, so... Be brave. Ask questions. It's a vampire's life full of toil and strife we undead undergo. And we don't give a damn whether woman or man from where the blood might flow. For we're homeward bound to the night birds sound where the sun will never see. And we won't give a damn when we drink your blood That we live nocturnally For we live nocturnally, me boys For we live nocturnally It's a vampire's life, sleeping days, working nights And we live nocturnally once more we rise with lust in our eyes For the warm the living possess And those who see will surely agree How gothically we are dressed In our classic blacks With our skin like wax And a smile of perfect white teeth we're a handsome crew, and the work that we do must be done nocturnally. For we live nocturnally, me boys, for we live nocturnally. It's a vampire's life, sleeping days, working nights, and we live nocturnally. So carve a steak of the hardest oak, and wear your silvery cross. That garlic braid hanging there on the wall, keep a little out of the sauce. For the living dead don't have many friends, and we make the ones that we need. 
Just one small bite, you can join with the night, and you'll live nocturnally. For we live nocturnally, me boys, for we live nocturnally. It's a vampire's life, sleeping days, working nights, and we live nocturnally. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.